reading from John chapter 11, verses 45 to 57. It's on page 898 in the church Bibles. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered around the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. So this is the beginning of the end. It's the very beginning of a very tragic and horrific end for Jesus in one sense. And yet in another sense, this is the beginning of a very glorious end. So last week, we encountered Jesus at the funeral of one of his closest friends. Lazarus had died. His lifeless body lay motionless in a tomb, his tomb. His heart no longer beating, his blood no longer surging through his veins, his skin once vibrant in color, now void of all color, his limbs rigid, motionless. This dude was really dead. Jesus suddenly shouts, Lazarus! Come out. The sound of a familiar voice begins to reverberate in the ears of this dead man. Suddenly, his heart begins to beat. His blood begins to surge throughout his lifeless body. His lungs inflate a flickering of the eyelid, a twitch of the fingers and toes. Lazarus is alive again. Blurry-eyed, you can imagine, blurry-eyed and confused Lazarus staggers out from his tomb, tripping over the linens that wrap his body. He was a dead man, but now he's alive. Jesus has raised him to life. This was Jesus' greatest sign yet. Greater than turning water to wine, greater than healing a sick boy and a blind beggar. Greater than feeding 5,000 people or walking on water. It was his greatest display of power yet. And as we just read in our passage, it would prove to be the very impetus for the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. It It was the event that set into motion all the other events that leads to his impending crucifixion. 
the very beginning of a very horrific but very glorious end. Now, when we get to verse 45, our text for this morning, Jesus tells us that that there were Jewish spectators in the crowd on the day of Lazarus' graveside party. Some are absolutely floored at this unbelievable thing that's happened. Many believe in Jesus, but others reject him. And the ones who reject Jesus, we see they're, they're running off to tell a handful of Pharisees what they had just witnessed. And, and when the Pharisees get word of what Jesus had done, fear and paranoia begin to set in. Look at verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what will we do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And the Romans will come. And they're going to take away our place and our nation. Fear has gripped these Pharisees. So much so that they, they go before the Jewish um, Supreme Court of Jesus' day. We see it's called the council. And they're asking, what, what should we do with this man? If he keeps going on like this, we're going to have a national crisis on our hands. His, his following is, is only going to grow. Political instability will come as a result. Rome's going to get word, and, and when Rome gets word, you better believe they're going to come and crush us. They're going to want to take away our very identity. These guys were absolutely petrified terrified of Jesus' growing fame, terrified at the thought of what might happen to them if it continued. So in their eyes, something drastic needed to happen. We need to put an end to this Jesus. But how? Enter Caiaphas, right? Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, speaks over the crowd. Listen to what he says, starting at, verse, at the end of verse 49. He says, you know nothing at all. That's a great way to start a conversation, right? That's a really helpful way of addressing somebody. You know nothing at all. So he rebukes them. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. How do you stop this Jesus? Here's the solution. Kill him. Kill Jesus so that Rome won't kill us. You see what's going on here? The seed of death has been planted. The plan has been set in motion. Jesus' death warrant has been issued. The Son of God will be executed. He's going to die a brutal, gruesome death. And it's only a matter of time. This is the story of the very beginning of the end of Jesus. It's the very beginning of a very horrific and very glorious end. Caiaphas' words set into motion the most evil conspiracy ever to be conspired by man. It's the execution of the Son of God himself. Now, John tells us that there is more meaning in Caiaphas' words. 
more meaning than what he intended when he first spoke them. And we're going to spend the rest of our time together taking a closer look at these two verses, verses 51 and 52. These are uh, the two most central and important verses in our passage this morning. And the implications of what Jesus is saying here are huge. They're huge. So remember what Caiaphas says in verse 50. He says, It is better for you that one man should die for the nation, for, for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. What, is G, what does John say? Here's how John understands these words. Look closely with me at verses 51 and 52. John says, he did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So here's our big idea for this morning. Jesus died to gather up his kids. Jesus died to gather up his kids. John wants us to see at least three big things here. We're going to walk through each, each of these points this morning. The first is this. What man planned for evil, God was planning from the beginning for our good. What man planned for evil, God was planning from the very beginning for our good. Notice carefully what John says in verse 51 about Caiaphas' words. He says, he, Caiaphas, didn't say this on his own accord. But being high priest that year, he, what? He prophesied that Jesus would die. Did, did you catch that? John says Caiaphas didn't speak these words about Jesus on his own meaning they didn't originate with him. Rather, John tells us that Caiaphas prophesied, meaning when he spoke these words, he was speaking God's words. God himself thought these thoughts first. These words originated in the mind and heart of God, not in the mind and heart of Caiaphas. And while Caiaphas really thought these thoughts and really spoke these words, God is the one who put them in his mind and on his lips. Do you realize just how profound this is? Look, if we only read through verse 50, we'd rightly conclude Caiaphas has come up with the evilest of all evil plots ever to be conceived by man, the plot to brutally execute the very Son of God. Caiaphas, he's a really bad guy. And this is a horrible plan. But John doesn't stop there, does he? John continues to write, and in so doing, unlocks for us a far deeper meaning to Caiaphas' words, far deeper than what Caiaphas could have imagined when he first spoke them. So if these really are God's words, if they really did originate in the mind and heart of God himself, what is God saying here? What is he saying? Here's what God is saying to us. He's saying, it's far better that my son, Jesus, die than it is that you perish. That's what God's saying. He's saying, it's better, better that Jesus 
die. Caiaphas wanted Jesus dead. God wanted Jesus dead. The difference between the two makes all the difference in the world. What we need to see from the outset is that what man was planning for evil, God was planning from the very beginning for our good. One theologian says it this way. says, the death of Jesus was not mainly a tragic set of events which God turned for our good. It was a loving set of events which God planned for our good. God himself served the death warrant on his own son. He did not just predict it. He unleashed it. So you see, God wasn't on the sidelines watching this plan against his son unfold, thinking to himself, how, how am I going to make this thing work out for good? God was in it from the beginning. It was his plan all along to kill his own son so that he wouldn't have to kill us. And we'll talk more about this idea in a minute, but what we need to see right now is that what man was planning for evil, what man planned for evil, God was already, from the very beginning of time, planning it for your good, for my good. Now, why does this matter? What difference should this make as we live our ordinary lives, as we go about our business Monday through Saturday. Here's just a few things that, that God has helped me see in this text this past week. The first is this. God is at work in the presence of real evil for the good of his children. God's at work in the presence of real evil for the good of his children. You know, last Sunday, Christians gathered all around the world to celebrate Jesus' resurrection. For most, it was a day of anticipated joy, of celebration, of feasting, fellowship. But for hundreds of believers in Sri Lanka, both young and old, it was a day stained by unspeakable evil, unspeakable horror. Now, where was God in all of this? Where is God when evil feels so near to, to us? Well, John tells us that God is in it. He's not causing it, but he's in it. He's working through it for our good. God wasn't making something good out of a bad situation. Not in these fateful moments in John 11, not in the fateful moments last Sunday in Sri Lanka. God doesn't make the best of bad situations. Not then, not ever. Rather, God is he's really present in the midst of real evil and unspeakable horror. He's at work in it for our joy and for his glory. This can be a, a real comfort to us, can't it? This can be a real comfort for us when, when we're faced with evil. God's not aloof. He's not absent. He's not unaffected. He's present. He's really present. 
And he's at work in the midst of it for the good of those that he loves. Second, God is at work in your hardship and your suffering for your good. Let that one sink in. He's at work in your hardship and your suffering for your good. God isn't, he's not a spectator. He's not looking on your hardship and your suffering from the sidelines. He's not looking from the outside in saying, well, I guess I need to make something good out of this pain. God is a very real and present help in the midst of every bit of your pain, every bit of your sorrow and suffering. He's in it, and he's working through it for your good. So friends, God is at work in your miscarriage. God is at work in your chronic pain. He's at work in your disorder. He's at work in your cancer. He's at work in your loss. He's at work in your strained and your broken relationships. He's at work in your financial struggles. God is at work in all of it. And he's working all of it for your good. Not one bit of your suffering is wasted. Not one bit. Not one bit of it is meaningless. Church, we need to believe this with our whole hearts. God is at work in your hardship and suffering for your good. So that's the first thing that John wants us to see. What man has planned for evil, God from the very beginning was planning for our good. The second thing that John wants us to see flows out from the first point. At the very heart of God's plan to save you and I is a costly exchange. At the heart of the Christian faith is this costly exchange. Jesus for you. Jesus for me. We call this substitution. God's plan from the very beginning was to substitute his only son for us. Look with me again at verse 50. Caiaphas says to the council, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In other words, Caiaphas' proposal, as we said, is let's kill Jesus. And in so doing, we're going to save ourselves. We're going to save our nation. Substitute Jesus for ourselves. But remember, these aren't just Caiaphas' words. These words originated in the mind and heart of God first, not in the mind and heart of Caiaphas. So what is God saying here? He's saying, my plan all along has been that I will kill my son so that I don't have to kill you. God's plan A was always to substitute Jesus for you, to substitute Jesus for me. Now, maybe you're hearing this and you're saying to yourself, well, hold up. Did you just say that God killed Jesus? And that this was his plan from the very beginning? That, that can't be. That seems so harsh and unloving. I mean, why on earth would a gracious, kind father intentionally plan to take the life of his precious 
son. Maybe it seems cruel and harsh and vindictive to you that a so-called gracious God would plan from the very beginning to kill his only son. Wouldn't that make him ungracious and unmerciful and unloving and unkind? It doesn't. In fact, it's the very thing that puts God's mercy and his grace and his love on display the most. You see, God loves you so much that he was willing to kill his son so that he wouldn't have to kill you. Isaiah 53 brings this into sharp focus for us. Listen to what Isaiah says. He says, Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Dropping down to the end of verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God crushed his son so that he wouldn't have to crush us. God fully unleashed his white-hot wrath on Jesus so that he wouldn't have to unleash it on you. God laid the crushing weight of your sin and my sin upon the shoulders of Jesus so that, that you and I wouldn't have to bear the crushing weight of his judgment against sin. God loved you enough that he crushed his own son. Friends, this is at the very heart of the gospel. It's at the center of God's gracious plan to redeem us, to rescue us. Jesus for you. Jesus for me. Now, what difference does it make? What should this great, costly exchange what difference should it make for you and I as we live out our ordinary lives? Here are just a few things. We could talk about this for days, but here are just two things that I think if we take to heart uh, are going to radically shape the way that we live day to day. So here's the first thing. Because God substituted Jesus for you, you no longer have to fear death itself. Listen, death wasn't a part of the plan. God originally created us to live, not to die. Death isn't a good thing. It's, it's horrific. It's destructive. It's an evil thing. Any one of us who has experienced loss knows this. The Bible tells us that death is our mortal enemy. Death is the enemy. We should hate death, but friends, we shouldn't fear it. If you're believing in Jesus, if your hope is tethered to the one who is your resurrection and your life, death is no longer something that you need to live in crippling fear of. You see, Jesus has crushed death itself in his own death. He's swallowed it up in victory. The tight grip of death on you 
was loosed when Jesus raised his son from the dead on that first Easter morning. We no longer need to fear death. That's the first point. The second is this. Because God substituted Jesus for you, sin is powerless over you. Sin has no power. When God crushed his son, death itself was crushed, defeated. But Jesus not only crushed death in his perfect death, he also destroyed our bondage to sin. God tells us that if our hope is in Jesus, we're, not, we're no longer slaves to sin. Sin no longer is our master. Jesus is. But the enemy of our soul is whispering a subtle and destructive lie. Here it is. You're powerless to sin. You are powerless to sin. You're powerless to your addiction to pornography. You're powerless to your pride. You're powerless to your selfishness. You're powerless to your anger. You're powerless to your laziness. You're powerless to sin. He wants nothing more, friends. He wants nothing more than for you and me to believe this with our whole hearts, powerless to sin. Our enemy whispers, you're powerless to sin, but the cross shouts, sin is powerless over you. You've been freed by the blood of Jesus. Sin's no longer your master. The king of glory is your master. The third point that we're going to look at this morning God's sovereign purpose in this costly exchange from the beginning was to gather up his scattered kids. Why would God substitute Jesus for us? Why would God plan from the beginning to kill his own son? Well, John tells us the answer in verse 52. He says he does this in order to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. I think John's saying at least two things here, profound things. First, God decided from before the foundation of the world that you would be one of his redeemed kids. From the very beginning, God set out to redeem you, to redeem you from the power of sin and death, to overcome your rebellion. From the very beginning, God chose you. He set his love on you in his son. So it's no accident. It's no accident that God sought after you, that he bought you and he brought you to himself. God decided from the beginning that you would be one of his kids. So if you're one of God's redeemed children, this should give you an unshakable confidence in what God has accomplished for you in the cross. Nothing, nothing at all can stand between God and his relentless pursuit to bring you to himself, to make you one of his redeemed kids. When God gathered you to himself, nothing can pull you away. His love for you is unstoppable. His grace is irresistible. Jesus pursued you 
He found you, and he's gathered you to himself. So believe, church, believe with unshakable confidence today that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate you from the love of God. Nothing, nothing, nothing is stronger than God's loving grip. Not your sin, not your doubt, not your pain, not your suffering, nothing. God is holding you fast, and he's not letting go. The second thing, the last thing that we're going to look at this morning. Jesus is working now to gather up his scattered kids all over the world. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus says this, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And then he says this, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Already, Jesus is saying, I've got sheep out there, sheep that that I came to shed my blood for, that I still need to gather up into one flock. John's saying the same thing here in verse 52. Jesus died to gather up his kids from all around the world. You know, at the end of the Bible, John records for us this vision of what it looks like in the new heavens and new earth. Here's what he says. He says, and they sang, this is Revelation 5, verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them into a kingdom. This is Jesus' vision. This is Jesus' vision for his church right now. At this very moment, Jesus is gathering up those that he came to shed his blood for, people from every race and ethnicity and tribe and language and nation. This is something to be glad for. It's something that we should celebrate. This is, we should be celebrating this, our blood-bought diversity. It's a testimony, I think, to God's, his greatness and the depth of his grace and his mercy. God's grace isn't limited by race or ethnicity. It's not limited by skin color or the way that we speak. Jesus is gathering up his blood-bought kids from all over the world for our infinite joy and ultimately for his glory. Jesus died to gather up his kids. This was the unstoppable, sovereign, good plan of God from the very beginning. And friends, church, it's for our forever joy in him as well. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful 
We're grateful that you're not a God who stands on the sidelines, looking in, wondering, how am I going to make something good out of this? How am I going to redeem these people? No, you have decided from before the foundation of the world that you would send your son to die on a cross, to bear the awful weight of our sin, the awful weight of your wrath, a wrath and a judgment that we rightly deserve so that we could have access to you, so that we could have a relationship with you. What great love, what greater love is this? Father, we're so grateful that you have sent your son to do what we could not do for ourselves. Help us to live in light of this work on the cross for us, to live in light of what Jesus has done for us, that we would be a changed people, that we would not leave this place unchanged. Help us Equip us to take your gospel to the nations, to take your gospel to our neighbors, to our kids, to our loved ones, to our friends, our coworkers. Help us to do this. It's the greatest news that we could ever receive. Help us in this. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.